usually are eager to use for your daily devotions the book of Zephaniah. So you can turn in page, uh, to page 1496 in your Bibles. Those of you who have the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, turn to page 1496, look at Zephaniah. And uh, while you've got your finger there, turn back all the way to page... Uh, page 1064. And let's look at where Zephaniah is going to fall historically. On page 1064, right after the Song of Solomon, right before the book of Isaiah, you have a, a chart there that shows what we think are the dates of the prophets. And you'll notice there are three general periods in which the prophets are writing. It's under the Assyrian tyranny or under the Babylonian uh, judgment or the warning of the Babylonian judgment to come, which you know comes in 586. So the Assyrians take off into captivity the northern tribe in 722. So you can see that everybody from Amos through Isaiah is prophesying before the Assyrian captivity. And then uh, beginning with Nahum all the way through uh, Obadiah, uh, or actually Ezekiel, they're predicting the Babylonian captivity. And uh, you'll notice that Zephaniah falls in that group. So last week we looked at Habakkuk. Now we're going to back up just about a decade or two maybe and deal with Zephaniah during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah was a good king. He was really the last good king in Israel. But uh, so you can see historically where we are. Then, of course, uh, after the Assyrian captivity, then Babylonian captivity. And then, you know, uh, in uh, 520 or so, the uh, or a little earlier, the Israelites start coming back and they've rebuilt the temple by 516. So. Um, you can see where Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are going to fall. So this is uh, toward the end right, uh, of the uh, kingdom of Israel right before the Babylonian captivity. So now we can turn back over to Zephaniah on page 1496. And, uh, and we're going to read portions of these three chapters, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. Before we do, let me just say, you know, I, I don't know any guy I've ever met that didn't want to be happy. And most guys I meet, by the way, I'm looking at these flags, reminds me of something. Uh, those of you who are members of Second Presbyterian, let me just say, if you haven't gotten your tickets yet for you, your spouse, whomever else you can drag over here to come to the missions conference tomorrow night, the banquet, please grab tickets. Max Metzger is going to have them at the back and plan to join us tomorrow night. Uh, Marcelo Robles from Argentina will be speaking tomorrow night. All of our missionaries who are visiting this weekend will be here uh, tomorrow night. So please plan, plan to join us. You can pick up those tickets. Sorry, those flags reminded me of it. Uh, but I, I don't know anybody that really doesn't want to be happy. And a lot of guys I know are really trying real hard to be happy. Uh, and the ones who are trying the hardest to be happy are really the ones probably who are the unhappiest underneath. And often trying to overcompensate. Because there's a restlessness or unhappiness down deep underneath. Now, what we're going to get with Zephaniah 
is really the way to know the deepest joy in life. And one of the most joyful verses in all the Bible is recorded in Zephaniah. In fact, some of you have this memorized, I'm sure. If you'll turn over a few pages to Zephaniah 3, 17. This is on page 1502. He's talking here about the restoration that's going to come. You know, God's final blessing upon Israel. And uh, in verse 16, he says, On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Then this famous verse, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Wow. Uh, there's, a, there's some anthems written to that last phrase. He will rejoice over you with singing. There's one that our choir I know sings that I like so much. But here is an example of how we have... You know, we know that when we get to heaven, we're going to be praising Him. And we'll all be given a voice that will be on key, which will make the Amen Bible study singing a whole lot better than it is now. Uh, but we'll all get that perfect pitch when we get to heaven. Uh, but here we have that rarest of instances where we're told that the Father is going to sing uh, when He sees us coming home. So we'll both be singing. It's going to be quite a moment. So here's the kind of deepest, highest, broadest, most sincere joy a person can ever find. It's joy in the presence of the Lord. Now, how do you get there from here? You say, I'm not experiencing it. Well, you know, I don't either all the time. How do we get there? Well, we're going to find the key in our lesson. It has to do with humility. And I don't find a lot of guys who are saying, you know, I, I really want to be happy, and so I'm going to get more humble. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hear anybody say that. But what we're going to find in Zephaniah is he has a way for us to get there from here. It's not the way that you would naturally think of. And maybe that's the reason that so many of us are not very naturally happy is that we're trying to find it in some way that we weren't built for and doesn't suit our circumstances. So we're going to look at Zephaniah and find out really how to get happy and, and to do it the right way. Now, the first thing we're going to notice in, in this first chapter especially is that God's people are not going to dis- escape destruction on the great day of the Lord unless we repent. So what you're going to get in this whole first section, and there are two major thoughts, and you can see this on your handout, Two, you know, Roman number one, Roman number two. But the first idea is this. Unless we repent, uh, we're going to get destroyed along with everybody else. And you may uh, belong to a Baptist church, Catholic church, Presbyterian church, Episcopalian church, all kinds of churches. Doesn't matter what kind of church you belong to. Doesn't matter what kind of church you don't belong to. If you don't repent in the way that the Lord orders, you will be destroyed no matter what church you belong to. You may say, well, I belong to Bellevue Baptist. That's the biggest, baddest church in town. To use non-biblical language. And so, surely, you know, and I was a personal friend of Adrian Rogers. He knew, he knew my name. Good. <laughs> That's not going to help you. Uh, because you can know all the people you want to, join all the churches you want to. Uh, but if there's not sincere repentance in your heart, you will get destroyed along with all the nations who have been doing evil against him. You will be, you'll face the same judgment that a terrorist will face unless you repent. I mean, I, I'm sorry. That's, that's an awesome thing to say, but it's true. Now, he will be punished more than you will, but you'll face the same judgment 
uh, unless we find real repentance. Now, let's look at the text. Let's read a few verses, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, you know, possibly a great-grandson of the king Hezekiah, we don't know, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. Once again, you see what the prophet is doing. He's saying, here's this universal worldwide judgment. And you can find all the church going, yeah, God, go get them. And then he says something about Judah. And they go, huh? You know, us? So I will stretch out my hand against Presbyterians and against all who live in Memphis churches. I will cut off all, uh, cut off from this place every remnant of Baal. The names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He has invited On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of His jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For He will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation. Before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Okay. 
It's only 6.30 in the morning. My goodness. Whew, that'll wake you up. All right. Here's what he's saying, first of all. He says, God's judgments are going to cover the whole earth. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, both men and animals, birds and fish. So the first thing he's saying is, nothing will escape my notice. I'm sovereign Lord. This is not just the Christian God or those in the West or the American God or the Memphis God or the Bible Belt God. This is God of every square inch of the universe. And it's all coming under scrutiny. So worship Him for who He is, the God of the universe. And then secondly, he says, God's judgments will begin or commence with His own people. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. Why? First of all, because of their idolatry. And Look at that series of things in verses 5 through 9. This is what causes Him to judge the church. It's because we bow down to false gods. The word bow is one of the common words used for worship. The one to whom you bow down is the one you're giving worth to. Is the one that you're praising. The one you're submitting to. The one whose authority you're acknowledging. So when you bow down to something other than God, you are making Him very jealous. When you take your oaths by some false god, put your hand on the Koran and swear to Allah, you make Him very angry. Because Allah does not exist. You get that? He doesn't exist. He's a figment of somebody's imagination. That's what God says. If you look in Psalm 135 and some other places in Isaiah, when he talks about these other gods, he's saying you're bowed down before nothing. Something made by the hands of men, if it's stone or wood. If it's not stone or wood, it's something made by the imaginations of men. It's man-made. So don't swear to something that's not deity. You make God very angry. Why? Because you're comparing him to a stone or to a piece of wood or to a figment of a man's imagination. Don't compare him to them. He's not to be compared. He's the incomparable God. So take your oaths. Get your integrity from him alone. When we neglect the Lord and act as though he doesn't matter. When we adopt alien customs. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, it says in the text uh, in verse 8, he says, uh, and clad in foreign clothes. That's, that's not really because they had bad style. <laughs> Nor is it because they didn't wear Western clothes. They wore Eastern clothes or something like that. It's because they were taking on the moral norms of a culture and saying, oh, that's better. I like that better. Uh, I'll follow their gods and I'm going to become like them. Uh, that was the attitude. Uh, and practicing superstition. Uh, for example, you notice he says, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but he said, on that day I'll punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold. So that they, they felt that God wouldn't bless them if they stepped on the threshold. Some of these crazy superstitions. Or if they stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. Now, I know some of us are neurotic. And our mother's told us something that's stuck in our head, and that's the way it is. But if you really think that you're going to be blessed because you knock on wood. That happened to be plastic. But I just know some people, they'll run all over the room until you finally knock on real wood somewhere. What is that? Uh, God is saying, forget all that crap. It has nothing to do with being blessed. And when you try to order your life by superstitions, you know, athletes are the worst. You know, wear the same old dirty, filthy, stinky socks all season until you lose. 
You know, the whole, the whole team is hoping they lose. Get rid of your socks. Uh, athletes go through all this kind of stuff, and God is saying, forget all that. It has nothing to do with where your blessing comes from. Get your head straight. Yeah, you're, you're, you're acting like a crazy man. Um, and then violating neighbor love in 9b, you see he's saying, all who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit, that is, you go to worship and you're ripping off a brother. You go to worship and you're taking advantage of one of the widows. You go to worship and you don't even care about the poor guy who's worshiping with you, has no idea where lunch is coming from. Doesn't even cross your mind. Filling the temple with violence and deceit, crookedness, dishonesty. So God wants worship from those who take neighbor love very seriously. And then uh, you notice because not only their idolatry, but because of their complacency. In verses 10 through 13, I will punish those who are complacent. Complacency. Oh, whatever. Whatever is anti-theistic. Because God does care whatever you say, think, and do. So when you get this adolescent whatever attitude about what you do, it's worse than you think because God cares about what you think. And we have to take everything very seriously. We're not negative people. We're not depressive people. But we are scrupulous people because God cares about every thought in our minds. So this complacency is induced by success. You see in verses 10 through 11, you have to watch out for success. Success in your business is truly a gift from God. But notice that he says all who trade with silver will be ruined. He's going to show up in the market district and turn it over. So all those who were successful and thought that defined them. Their financial success defined who they are. That gave them their label before other men. That was how they defined themselves. That is going to be completely judged and destroyed. If you are building your happiness based on your prestige in the marketplace, your success on the bottom line, your income or your bank account or the accoutrements of having success, you couldn't possibly be happy if you think. Mindless men who make a lot of money can fool themselves and be happy for a while. But men who think can't really be happy because it's all coming to an end. God says it's going to be more than just death. It's going to be His judgment on it all. But in, when we are successful, we can be induced to complacency. That is exactly what has happened in our culture. Just take a look at it. Isn't it interesting? 9-11, the churches in New York were so full they weren't pews for everybody. 9-11 escapes everybody's memory. And about three weeks later, we're right back where we started. We're now, now nice and successful and secure. So forget God. So we turn to God when we're in trouble. And then when we're not in trouble, like ourselves, generally speaking, our culture is not in trouble. We are generally secure. We are generally successful. It induces a, an awful, God-hating complacency. And it's accompanied by arrogance. Not only am I self-satisfied, but I'm giving myself credit for it. <laughs> Look what I did. <laughs> Look, I had the wit to go to law school and get on law review and get into the best firm. And now look at my, my name and reputation. I'm a, you know, one of those best lawyers in Tennessee or whatever it is. You know, I got my name in the magazine. Look what I did. Uh, God's going to judge that. That attitude of arrogating to yourself 
something that belongs to him alone. And as Mark Twain said about someone who said he was a self-made man, Mark Twain said, sure, I'm glad that he absolved God of all responsibility in that case. (laughs) Nobody here is a self-made man. Uh, And then it ends in futility. This complacency we see in verse 13. Now, we are told that as a result of all this, God's judgment will come with finality. God's judgment covers the whole earth. God's judgment begins or commences with his own people. And then we see God's judgment will come with finality in verses 14 through 18. First of all, we saw it's imminent. It is near and coming quickly. You say, well, God's been saying that an awful long time now. You know, if Zephaniah was written in 620 B.C., let's see, that would be about 2,600 plus hundred years. Where is God? Well, you know Jesus' answer to that. With the Lord, a thousand years is but a day in His sight. So, what is time from an eternal perspective? The point is this. We're living on the edge. Just as these folks were living on the edge. And they were. This is probably around 620 B.C. And the Babylonians come 586. So, 35 years out. Maybe less than that. Because this could have been written a little later. It was not written, we believe, after 612 B.C. Because that's when... Nineveh was destroyed, and he speaks of the Assyrians and Nineveh as not being destroyed. So it had to be before 612 B.C., probably around 620. So 35 years out, they're right on the edge, and the whole blooming country is going to be leveled in 35 years. So they're on the edge. Jesus says through his apostles that we're on the edge. Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 13 as though we're right at the last part of the night, and the dawn is almost here. So we're right in that between stage. We can feel the light coming. It's like going to Amen. You can, it's not like 1 o'clock in the morning. It's not that dark. Uh, and you can feel the light coming on. That's the age in which we live. We're right on the edge. So it's imminent. It's near and coming quickly. And we're supposed to live like it. That's the point. We're supposed to live like those who know the judgment is coming soon. And you notice uh, also this is intolerable. Look at this list It will come intolerably. And once again, Zephaniah is trying to remind the church, look, you guys are saying you can't wait till Jesus comes. Great. I can't wait either. But let's be clear about something. It's going to be great only for those who sincerely repent, not those who join a church somewhere or who had a great grandmother who was a godly woman or who know Adrian Rogers personally. It's not going to be for any of that. It's going to be those who have sincerely repented, turned from their wicked ways and have put their trust in God and are sincerely waiting for Him, taking their delight in Him, and identifying themselves by Him, taking their oaths by Him, and all the rest. Otherwise, look at that list. And that's what it's going to be like for those who don't know Him. It'll be an absolutely intolerable situation. And it doesn't matter how naturally optimistic you are. You know, you may be the happiest salesman in the world, but the most sanguine personality, when we come to the end, will see that this is really awesome. And it will be intolerably uh, painful for those who don't know him. A lot of people live like the optimist, you know, who who slipped and fell off the top of the Empire State Building and halfway down he was heard to say, so far so good. Uh, and that's the way a lot of people are living their lives. So far so good. Uh, they will be intolerable at the end. And then his judgment will come impartially. It's because they've sinned against the Lord. It won't be because they're, they're Jews or Gentiles. 
because of the Presbyterians or Catholics or anything else, that has nothing to do with it. Your label has nothing to do with it. Because you think you chose the right denomination and your theology is perfect has nothing to do with it. It will be impartial with respect to those sorts of things, man-made divisions, even in the church. It will be because those have somebody has done something about their sin and somebody hasn't done something about their sin. And the answer to facing God's judgment is to have a definitive solution for the sin problem. We'll talk about that in a minute. And fourthly, it will come inevitably. Neither their silver nor their gold will save them. That is, it's inevitable, it's inescapable. So this is, these are the definitions of God's coming. You'll find the same kind of thing when Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24 or Luke 21 or Mark 13, the so-called Olivet Discourse. Jesus is using the same sort of prophetic language. This is the way we're supposed to live. As people who know that His coming is soon, that is imminent, that it will be absolutely intolerable for those who haven't uh, trusted in Him, it will be impartial with, with respect to ethnic group or with respect to denomination, and that it will be absolutely inescapable. As Jesus says, people will want to say to the rocks, cover me. But they won't even be able to stone themselves. They'll have to face the judgment of God. Stoning would be better, Jesus said. So, once again, this is the backdrop for our happiness. Okay, you say, I thought this was going to be a message about happiness. Well, you've got to get the, the background. It's like, kind of like if, you, if you've been in New England to see the autumn fo- foliage, the reason it's so fantastic in New England, northern New England, is because you have these deep, dark evergreens. Uh, plus the fact you have mountains, which set it off so you get to see it you know, this way instead of this way. But you have the mountains, and then you have the dark, deep, dark evergreens as backdrop to these maples and so on that just set off the colors brilliantly. Well, the reason that our salvation is so brilliant, so joyful, is because the deep, dark background of God's holiness and His judgments. And uh, so we know what we're being delivered from. Now, in verse, uh, verses 2, 1 through 3, we see that God's judgments uh, not only uh, are uh, going to cover the whole earth and commence with His own people and come with finality, but God's judgments will take into consideration real, genuine repentance. He says, perhaps you will be sheltered or hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, the word Zephaniah means Jehovah hides or Jehovah shelters. So here you have the very essence of what he's trying to say. It's his very name, Zephaniah. Perhaps you will be sheltered. Perhaps Jehovah will shelter you. Perhaps Zephaniah for you on the day of the Lord's anger. Because he will consider repentance. Now, what is the repentance that he will consider? And this is the key to the whole book. How am I going to get to 317 where the Lord's going to sing over me and do a little jig? You know, How am I going to get there when I've got my sin and the judgment that I deserve is coming soon, it's, it's, it's coming inevitably. How am I going to get to there when I deserve this? Here's the answer. He gives it right here in 2, 1 through 3. First of all, he's talking about seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. 
Gather together, O shameful nation. And then before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps in on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, so he's making reference to the judgment, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord. All you humble the land, you who do what he commands. Now, what does he mean by seeking the Lord? Well, look back at chapter 1 again. And, and you'll see there some things that are the opposite of seeking the Lord. Verse 5, worshiping the starry host, swearing by the Lord and also by Moloch, turning back from following the Lord, not seeking Him, not inquiring of Him. And he says, be silent. So they just talk, 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 talk. Full of themselves. And there's what it means not to seek the Lord. So what would it mean then to seek the Lord? Well, let's take a look at some things here. First of all, wouldn't it mean to worship Him alone? Worship Him alone. Why? Because He alone is God. Now this applies to who Jesus Christ is. If there's one thing that Jesus Christ makes clear, it is there is no way for you to seek the Lord genuinely apart from Him. Can't be done. When you're seeking deity apart from Christ, you're seeking a deity that does not exist. And that makes God very jealous. That's the reason the Lord said... uh, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You don't come to the Father in heaven but by Jesus Christ. So if you're seeking God some other way than through Jesus Christ, you are not seeking a God who exists. You're seeking a figment of either your or somebody else's imagination that has been posted as a rival God that simply makes God jealous. Now, I'm not saying that when you start out seeking God, you know exactly who he is and that you have the Apostles' Creed memorized and he can tell us everything about Christian theology. No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that when you genuinely seek him, you seek the God who really is. And you learn of the God who really is. And the God who really is is the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, and gave us the scriptures. So if you want to seek the Lord genuinely, you'll seek him in the ways in which he has revealed himself in creation and in His Word, and eminently in Christ. So first of all, seek only the Lord and worship Him alone. And it doesn't do the the world any good when they hear the Western church say, all roads are basically going in the same direction. I was traveling back from Turkey one time, talking to a Muslim on the airplane about Christ. And he says, well, you know, I've read this theologian, this theologian, some of your American theologians who say that really we're all seeking the same God. We're all worshiping the same God. It doesn't do the world any good when you flatter them and pat their backs on the way to hell when they're seeking a God who doesn't exist. So let's be real clear about it. Worship the Lord alone. There's one thing that causes God to express His displeasure more than anything else. It is idolatry. Worshiping another God who doesn't exist. That's the message in the Old Testament. Jesus picks it right up and, and discusses the same thing. When You find when Peter and Paul, especially Paul, go around the world proclaiming the gospel, 
They do not say, oh, let's all get in this together and build an interfaith organization. Paul denounces every rival to the sole worship of Jesus Christ. Now, you you may say, I don't agree with Paul. That's fine. But that's what Paul says. And he is representing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Christ does. When Christ goes into the land of the Gentiles, when he crosses the lake in Mark 5, and goes to the, to the Decapolis, the ten cities, and there finds the Gadarene demoniac. They worship too over there, you know. They have their gods, they have their religion. God does not go, excuse me, well, you know, we have our religion over on the other side of the lake, and I just came over here to, look, to learn about your religion. Let's share. Why don't you tell me about your religion, and, and I'll tell you about our religion, and maybe we can learn from each other. Maybe, who knows, it could be a via media. There could be a third way. A middle way. There could be some new religion we can create together. If we just put the best of what you have together with the best of what we have. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Jesus goes in and commands that the demons give Him their name. And they say, our name is Legion. And He casts them into the bottom of the sea. And he claims absolute dominion of the Decapolis. And He doesn't compromise nor negotiate. He takes over. Why? Because he loves the Gadarene. And he loves the Gadarene's fellow citizens in, the, in Gadara and Gerasa and all the rest of the Decapolis. He loves them. And for them to have his love, he has to take over. Because every other God, so to speak, with a small g, is a tyrant. Absolute tyrant. And I just bid you look around the world and see what kind of tyranny I'm talking about. So love demands that God take over. King, take over. Take the reins of your rule and reign. That's the cry of the church. It's not us who are reigning. It's God who reigns and brings love and ministry and service and healing and restoration to the people over whom He reigns. So we don't negotiate. All we're doing when we negotiate is negotiating people's welfare away. Negotiating God's love away. They need God and they need Him alone. So do we. So when we get into this business of flattery of false religions, you're worshiping another God. So let's stick to the one we've been given. The one who is from all eternity. Swear by His name alone. We mentioned that. Uh, that may be a minor issue in our day. And in God's day, in the Old Testament, it was not a minor matter because a minor matter because you did swear by the name of God. You were bound because you belonged to Jehovah and His name was on you. Then whatever you said had the name of Jehovah on it. If you profess Christ today, then you've got the name Christianos, little Christ. You've got His name on you. So every contract you sign, every word you say, it ought to be as though you swore it before Jehovah. Now, that's what Jesus said. Why, why even bother to swear? Why don't you just let your yes be yes and your no be no? Because your name is Christian if you're a follower of Christ. It's a good way to live. Give Him your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, no complacency, no lack of passion. If you're really seeking the Lord, He's got your passion. He's got your heart. This is the one thing you really care about more than anything else. And anybody who knows you ought to know that about you. Not because you talk about it so much but because everything you do implies it. And they can see that you're on a trajectory. You have a clear focus in life. You have a passion about it. Heart, soul, mind, strength, 
Everything about me, my intelligence, my physical strength, my emotional life, the affections of my heart, my eternal aspirations, everything bound up in Christ and His kingdom. That's the reason Jesus said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and you let everything else fall in its place. So there's a focus and a priority given to God and the things of God. And then turning from all evil. Everything that the Bible labels evil, as far as we're concerned, that's to be renounced. And we don't go pragmatically figuring out what's good and what's not good. We look in the Bible and we find out what's good and what's not good. And one of the great complaints uh, in the Scriptures from the prophets is, you guys are calling something that's good evil and you're calling something that's evil good. You've reversed the whole thing. So, for the sake of tolerance now, you're calling multiple gods good. And that they're all equally alike. That seems good to you. Well, i got some news for you. That's bad! That's what the Bible says. So why don't you let the Bible define good and the Bible define evil and stick with it. Don't be impolitic. Don't be a poor diplomat. Don't be a blockhead. Don't be censorious and judgmental and litigious. But know who you are. Like we say, we don't cram our religion down other people's throat. Don't let them cram their religion down your throat and believe it for sure they've got one. And they're trying to cram it down your throat. So why don't you at least know who you are, know who God is, and know what good is and know what evil is. It comes from the Scriptures, His revelation. Stick with it. Now that's seeking the Lord. And then we could add to this what is said in chapter 1 where He says, you don't seek Me anymore nor inquire of Me. You don't ask Me anything. We stop praying. So, if we're seeking the Lord, we start asking Him, Lord, I've got this incredible decision to make tomorrow. I do not know what to do. Would You please guide me? Help me, Lord. What is disabling me from understanding what's the right decision here? Please, Lord, purge my heart of everything selfish, everything wicked, everything evil in my heart. Would You please give me clarity on this? And then would You help me to administer my decision in such a way that is favorable to you and pleasing to those around me so that I can influence people. I don't want to just be a hard head. Lord, help me to be winsome in carrying out your truth in my business decision. Ask him. He said, you don't even ask me anymore. So we're not seeking the Lord. He doesn't hear any requests from his people. We stopped asking. Prayer meetings are, are on the slide. So that's seeking the Lord, or at least part of what it means to seek the Lord. Then you'll notice he also says, in chapter 3, or chapter 2, seek the Lord. Then he says in uh, 3b, seek righteousness. Seek righteousness. Now, we've seen this word before. Justice is mishpat. Righteousness is tzaddik. And he's saying here, seek tzaddik. What is tzaddik? Well, tzaddik in the Old Testament, righteousness, is basically a man who lives his life according to rule. A man who lives his life according to the law. There's a righteous man. Uh, a just man is a man who takes the heart of God and applies it across the board to all peoples. So he not only conforms to the letter of the law, but he, he's a, a man who cares for the poor and the disenfranchised. So justice has another little ring to it. But here he says, seek righteousness. Now, how do we do this? Let me give you the ABCs of righteousness. Number one, acknowledge that you don't have it. <laughs> God, I've broken your law. 
And the New Testament says, I've broken it in one place. I've broken it all across the board. They're all, all the laws are related. And so for me to put myself forward as a law-keeping citizen of the kingdom of God is a joke. Because when Jesus takes us into an understanding of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, he shows us it's not just your outer behavior. That'd be bad enough. What if we put on the overhead here all the outer sins of this group in the last seven days? I don't have enough overheads <laughs> to put up all the external things, the things said and the things done that were wrong this past week by all of us. We do not have time in life to get them all up there for the past seven days. But add to that, what if we put up there all your wicked thoughts? How long would that take? Two eternities to get that up. So what Jesus shows us is it's not just adultery, it's lust in your heart. It's both. It's not just killing a man, but it's wishing he were dead. So it's the thoughts of our hearts that have to do with righteousness. So if we don't begin by saying, Lord, I don't have what you're talking about, then we're not going to get it at all. If you try to build on a false foundation, the more building you put up, the worse it is because you've got a weak foundation. The more weight you've got on it, the worse it is. So the more you try to build a life on a self-defensive pretension that you have righteousness that you can put forward, the worse off you are. So what do you do about it? Well, you believe the gospel. And you can look in Romans 1 through 3. Paul spends chapter 1, or the latter half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3, explaining why you don't have the righteousness that's required to pass the judgment, the bar of judgment. You don't, no matter who you are. You can be a religious Jew, you can be a moral man, or you can be a pagan who goes to temple regularly. Pick any religion you want to. You don't have it, Paul says. So he says, he gets to the end of his argument in 3.20, every mouth is shut. We have nothing to say. And then he goes into 3.21, but now a righteousness apart from the works of the law, apart from the law, has been revealed. Aha! So there's another righteous way of righteousness that comes down out of heaven. What is this? Uh, please tell. This righteousness is through Christ, through faith in Christ. How does that work? He lived a perfect life. He's got righteousness. Ah, now I know somebody who's got what it takes to get to heaven. How do I get some of that? You put your trust in Him, and He gives the total account to you, an account of righteousness before God. You say, that sounds like a fairy tale. And I agree, that's what it sounds like. I can hardly believe the gospel. If you don't believe it, I have great sympathy. It's very hard to believe. Who could believe that? That you would get your righteousness through simply believing in somebody else's righteousness who wants to give it to you. And who could believe that your unrighteousness gets forgiven simply by trusting in someone else's payment for unrighteousness, namely the death of Jesus Christ? Who could believe that? That's what the gospel is. You believe in Christ to take away your unrighteousness and cleanse you. You believe in Jesus Christ to give you His righteousness so that now you have a perfect record. You don't just have a clean record. You have a perfect record that is full of good things that you get credit for because Jesus did them all. That's how you get righteousness. That's seeking righteousness. Paul says in Romans 10 that the, the Jewish people, the problem was, he picks the, he picks the most difficult case to argue, which is a very religious Jew, a Jew by the book. And if you'll turn to Romans 10, you'll see what he says about, about them. Here is the, here is, if, if anybody could earn their way to heaven, surely it would be the Jews. But he says in Romans 10, this is page 1827. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven and so on and so on. Um, okay, let's stop there. So what he's saying is these people, they, they're zealous about something. They, they want a form of righteousness, <clears throat> but it's their own righteousness. And there's something good about not stealing. A Jew who doesn't steal, that's good. That's better than stealing. But if that's your righteousness that's going to qualify you to escape the judgment, you have another thought coming. Because you may not have stolen against him, but all the while you kept your hands off his property, you're going, oh, I wish that were my property. There you see you've got a problem. Because Jesus says your problem is not just what you didn't do, it's, it's what you thought. So you're in trouble if you're basing your acceptance to get you into heaven on what you didn't do that was wrong or what you did do that was right. It's completely, that's what Paul says. And so those who sought a righteousness don't get it. And the Gentiles who didn't seek it got it. Why? Because they believed in Jesus Christ. So the first thing is believe the gospel for your justifying righteousness. And then what? Then you conform to God's law. And when you come to Matthew 5 through 7, once again, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this, and the Pharisees were considered the most righteous people on the face of the earth. And here's what he said to his poor, bedraggled disciples. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, that is, if your righteousness is not greater than the preachers, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Yeah, because they never understood the depth of righteousness and they never looked to God to give them the righteousness that comes from Him. Now, when you do, your righteousness will exceed the legalistic preachers because you have found acceptance before God because of what He gives you in Christ. And then out of gratitude, you have sought to follow Him in what is called sanctifying righteousness. Here you have justifying righteousness. Here sanctifying righteousness. That's the way you seek it. So first of all, you've got to seek a complete, total, perfect righteousness to set your heart at rest so that you can now follow Him with gratitude, not with guilt and fear, which is what most men do. Get into religion just enough so that it will assuage your conscience. <laughs> Go to church Christmas and Easter and every once in a while just so you can kind of have your record on, you know, have a record in your mind. Hey, I was, I tip my hat. Give to some charitable causes until your conscience is relieved. That's the way most men give. And if you have been raising money, you know how to play it. You find the guy who's not up to his level of relieving his conscience yet. And you go tweak him a little bit. And he'll give a little bit. But what the Scriptures are saying, no, we're not going to give like that. We're not going to live like that. We're going to live in gratitude for having all of our conscience settled for all eternity. And now we're going to do it out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, and out of joy. And then... Thirdly, he says, seek humility. How do you do that? Well, we've got six minutes to talk about it. And you can tell we're not dealing with the latter half of 
Zephaniah, and I'll give it to you next week in writing. How do you seek humility? Well, first of all, you want to contemplate a few things. If I'm going to get to joy in the next life and joy in this life through seeking God, seeking righteousness, and seeking humility, tell me how this works. Well, first of all, you want to contemplate three things. First of all, you're a creature. The psalmist says we did not make ourselves. God made us. And that calls for a very different stance in life when you know that you're handmade. That means you belong to somebody. That means somebody has ownership over you. What makes you think you can rule your own life? I'll tell you what makes you think that. You forgot that you were made. You thought you made yourself. Or you accidentally emerged out of the murk. So I suppose if you emerge through chance out of the murk, and since we all know chance doesn't exist, and so you owe chance nothing, so now you just owe it to yourself. Just live for yourself because you emerged out of the murk. Or you made yourself. Either one leads to the same conclusion. You're not a creature and you don't owe anybody anything. It's all about you. But you're a creature, the Bible says. You're also sinful. So it's humble enough to be made from the hands of someone. Or in this case, he speaks and we come into being. Or, as we know, we were made out of the dirt of the ground. How's that for a heritage? Oh, I know my great-grandfather, speck of dirt. Yeah, that's where I was made. So now that's, that's enough to humble a person. But now to be told, in your creatureliness, you completely rebelled against what it means to be a creature. You are now a rebel creature. You are in rebellion against the kingdom. You are trying to overthrow the king. That's your state brought into this world. That ought to be humbling. And then you find out you've been rescued. Like Jonah, who was spit out of the large fish onto the beach. And we saw, he didn't say, whoo, boy, I pulled off a good one there. No, he knew that he was a man who was being looked after, and a man who had been rescued. And so when you come out of the coal mine after three days, up through a little elevator, someone drilled down, you don't say, man, aren't I bold? You say, thank you, guys. And you feel so weak and vulnerable. And that's exactly what happens to anybody who knows they've been saved from the judgment to come. It leads to humility. You had nothing to do with it but the sin that made it necessary. And God was gracious to you and pulled you out of the slime. Then you imitate Christ. And how do you do that? Two ways. A lowliness of mind and a lowliness of service. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he said. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls when you take humility of mind and humility of heart. It's when you try to exalt yourself. It's when you try to put yourself over other sinful creatures. It's when you try to claim that this world owes you something. Which is to say in theological terms, God owes you something. It's when you start acting in that arrogant way that you're setting yourself up for restlessness. When you take the low seat at the feast in lowliness of service because you know that's where you belong, there's a restfulness of spirit. There's a joy. You're already tasting the things that are coming. Why? Because God said to humble yourselves under the hand of the mighty God. And He will exalt you in due time. You've got this little secret that one day the God of the universe is going to do a little dance for you and sing 
over you. This little secret that you know. You don't have to prove it to anybody. You don't have to exalt yourself now. What difference does it make if you sing over me? It doesn't make any difference compared to the fact that my Father cherishes me, has a crown waiting for me. I am going to rule with Him, with Christ, my older brother. We're in this together. I'm a king. What do I care what you think? There's a restfulness in my soul. But when I think I have to impress you, I have to be over you, I have to be better than you, I have to be liked by you, there's a restlessness. And I will not be happy because I'm a creature, a sinful creature, a redeemed sinful creature, and I wasn't made to act like that. And so I'm going to be restless my whole life. And I'm not going to know the joy of the Lord. So the joy in this life is connected to the joy we know we're going to get in the next life. I'm going to have to close with this. There was a great article in uh, World Magazine, maybe a few of you get that, uh, by John Piper, who is asking the question, why is it that we've seen here recently uh, the, the Muslims go crazy over these cartoons? And he says, doesn't this show you something about the difference between Islam and Christianity? He said, look, here's the difference. Muhammad never was considered to be humble, nor insulted, nor mocked. Our Jesus came into this world to be humbled and insulted and mocked. So the followers of Muhammad don't want to be insulted, humbled, or mocked. As a matter of fact, the Muslim interpretation of what happened to Jesus was he was not mocked. He was not crucified. Because God would not put him through that ignominy. So they say, we think more of Christ than you do. Because you say he was killed. And you say that he was, he was mistreated and abused and that God let him be subject to that kind of abuse. So for them, the leader is not to be humbled and abused and mocked and scorned. Certainly not crucified. The difference is that if you don't have a Savior who earns your salvation for you by being humbled and mocked and scorned, you're not going to be either. There's a huge difference between following Christ and following Muhammad. And you can see it in the world. Yes, when people make fun of Jesus, the last temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese and all the rest, we were all grieved and some people were complaining and saying all kinds of things. But down deep inside, we know something, don't we? It's exactly what happened to Jesus. If Martin Scorsese says that he was a normal human being who fathered some children and had this, you know, or the, last, or the Da Vinci Code says all these kinds of things about him, we say, you know, they haven't read their Bible lately or they don't believe the Bible. We're deeply grieved about it. But we say, you know, that happened to Jesus all of his life. You know what else we say? That's what happens to me. When I follow Jesus, same thing happens to me. So down deep inside we have this secret that one day the Father's going to dance over us and sing over us. Meanwhile, we live in a broken world and our mission is to love people who don't always love us back. That's the mission. So we don't go killing people when it happens. We say, God, help me to be faithful in it. You see the difference? The, the two key uh, people involved in these religions, Muhammad and Jesus, give you the answer to what's happening in, in society in response to this. Now, I don't mean to be overly critical of anybody else just to say, look, don't get disheartened by it. Just realize that's an outworking of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this world has come to expect different behavior out of people who follow Jesus. Let us pray. Father, uh, thank you for the joy that's promised us. And we pray that you'll help us to find the way to that joy, not through putting ourselves forward, 
Not through arrogating to ourselves things that don't belong to us. Not by trying to leapfrog over other sinful creatures who have been redeemed. But Lord, help us to find our joy through following Jesus Christ in His humility. And just as He has been exalted, knowing in our hearts, one day we shall also be. And we pray make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.